Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. Trying to force people to far outside that comfort zone for something they're supposed to just be enjoying and spending money on. And like, it's a big ask. And I think more beer could like meet people where they're at on some of those things. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining us this week is Kate Burnott, a contributing editor for Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Sightlines contributor for Good Beer Hunting, and previously beer editor for Draft Magazine. In addition to her award-winning writing, she's a BJCP-certified beer judge based in Montana. Her work covers a variety of companies and stories within the alcohol and beer spaces, making her a perfect insider for our wrap-up of 2021 and peak into 2022. Our wide-ranging conversation touches on journalistic and academic integrity in reporting, research, and policy, the neo-temperance movement, why we should be careful when talking about growth in the non-alcoholic beer segment, globalization of craft beer, and the role that technology has played in shifting expectations and styles, and impending supply chain issues. We look at what success brewers have experienced during the pandemic and what challenges lay ahead in the new year. In our conversation, we refer to Kate's reporting frequently. I've added links to the work we mentioned in the episode notes. Let's dive and get heavy. Kate Bernat, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. I am extremely excited to be on the show. You're very involved and really like a big force in the writing and in the reporting of craft beer and craft beer and brewing and GBH. Just for listeners that may not know where you came from and how you ended up there, can you give a little bit of background as to how you found yourself where you are? Yes, I grew up in New Jersey, like many other esteemed beer writers. It's kind of a strange for such a small state. It seems to produce a lot of beer writers. I don't know what that means, but um, I went to journalism school at Northwestern. And while I was there, uh, you know, I was very passionate about journalism, but I was always, I was also very passionate about food and beverage. I'd worked in, um, I had worked waiting tables in, in high school and college and really loved restaurants and, and wanted to be around food and beverage. And for a time, I kind of toyed around with Wanted, I applied to culinary school. I thought that's what I wanted to do. But I realized, oh, wait, I can just make food and beverage my reporting beat, obviously. I don't know why it took me so long to figure that out. But once I got there, <laughs> once I figured that out, I was reporting on, on yeah, food and beverage in Chicago uh, after I graduated. And it was really when I was at Red Eye, uh, which sort of still exists, but used to be, oh, gosh, those were the days. That was the thing you got on the train when you uh, when you went to wherever you were going, right? Exactly. And it was such a wonderful place to work. There were so many talented people there when I was there. But that's really where um, I was the nightlife reporter. So I was supposed to be reporting on cocktails and restaurants. But I saw this thing called craft beer blowing up and all these breweries opening. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And people seem very into it. And I am the nightlife reporter. I can make this my thing. And I really, I have to give all credit to the breweries in Chicago for being so kind to me and letting me just learn by kind of hanging out and asking questions. And that's really um, when I started, I think, making craft beer more of my 
focus. You were in Chicago at a very sort of interesting point. I recall like finding a calling in that world as well around the same time. It is uh, a really unique time to be in Chicago with the growth and development of the local scene. Totally. That would have been something like 2013, 14-ish. And it felt like, you know, every Goose Island alum was opening their own brewery and um, there were great, great beer bars springing up. And yeah, it was just an a very exciting time. It felt small and big at the same time. Um, but yeah, just really kind of a magic little, little time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, how could I kind of not end up writing about beer after that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're around very inviting people and it was a pretty sort of, uh, inclusive scene for people that wanted to get into it. Really great time. And you've obviously moved into, I think it's interesting, the balance that you have of like craft beer and brewing where you're focusing more on the, like, manufacturing and to a certain extent, sort of like the on-premise. And then you have sight lines where you're focusing on like broader stories and there's pretty big like human interest element in some of it too. Do you find having this like balance to be rewarding? Oh, totally. I mean, I have always said that journalism is the best career you can go into if you're a nosy person <laughs> or curious person. And it's amazing how much depth there is to beer. Like I remember my grandma asking me one time, she's like, so all, all you're writing about is beer. Like how, you know, almost like how can you make a whole job of that? And I, I mean, there are just so many stories to tell. Like if I wrote everything that was on my whiteboard, you know, I would need many more hours in a day, but yeah, I really enjoy. And I think the variety of stories that I work on, I think they kind of reinforce each other. Like the more, you know, about, supply chain, the more that helps you report on sales data. Like there's just so many intersections. And the more you know about all of that, the better stories you can tell. Let's start with something that you reported on that was published pretty recently. And it looks like your reporting has kind of gone back quite some time. And that is this neo-temperance movement kind of throughout the pandemic. There were a great deal of discussion about alcohol consumption patterns how they changed based on availability, tightening and loosening of restrictions, people spending more time at home for nosy people like you and me watching our neighbors take the trash out and seeing more Kansas stuff in there. Certainly uh, in Hitchcock's rear window, we would have observed a lot of that too. You've reported on and covered the neo-temperance movement. Like for those that are scratching their head and wondering why anyone would want to restrict our access to liquid freedom can you lay out the terrain a bit in terms of what this is? Yeah, since, you know, I think since the U.S. repealed prohibition, there have been a small segment of people who think that that was not the correct move. And the prohibition party still exists in the United States. Obviously, they're not a huge political force or anything. But, you know, these people exist who think that alcohol should not be something that is legal and available to us. And it's easy to kind of dismiss them, I think, as like nut jobs from where we are sitting. But I think it's so much more complicated than that. A lot of these people come from like the public policy and public health side of things. And it is hard to you, you can't argue in good faith that alcohol doesn't have some harms associated with it, like on personal levels, on social levels. There are demonstrable harms attributable to alcohol. You know, I'll admit that. And I think the question then is, well, what do we do about that? 
as a society? You know, do we prevent those harms by getting rid of alcohol entirely? Do we prevent those harms by making it harder to get? Do we prevent those harms by educating people about the risks of consuming alcohol? And I think people in the neo-temperance, neo-prohibition movement really come down on the side of restricting access. And that's kind of what defines them as a group. And, you know, I don't necessarily ag- agree with that broad strokes, but it's it's not as though they have no point or no leg to stand on with this. Right. But they really did become more of an interesting force during COVID as we were all debating regulations and access. And as, you know, the normal places to consume alcohol were closed. Yeah, they kind of saw their moment to be part of that dialogue and they really kind of came out of the woodwork a little bit. I thought the same. And I guess some of the goals of this movement that you talked about are obviously limiting access in some way. And there's a lot of different sorts of methods through which they can achieve that. One is like publishing research, also raising taxations. There was a story in Oregon that apparently like comes up every year about excise taxes, sales taxes. Do you assert the goals to be more or less like restricting access or limiting access? I guess those maybe even different things on their own, too. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of especially kind of public health researchers and, and more prominent public figures in this sort of neo-temperance movement know that just coming out and saying no one, no legal adults should drink alcohol is a not very popular position to take in America, where about 60 percent of the U.S. adult population drinks at least monthly. So, but even I think you you could say those forty percent who don't like believe that it's an, a sort of an American freedom to be able to do that. Uh, so they know that just coming out and saying no one should ever drink and we should not have alcohol is is kind of an untenable position. So instead, even if maybe that's kind of their dream, <laughs> I think they come out and say let's tax it at a way higher rate. Let's restrict the number of outlets that can sell it in certain neighborhoods. Let's put hourly restrictions on when this can happen. And again, those are things we saw happen during the pandemic. You know, in Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, restricted hours of sale at liquor stores and things. You know, these are, it's not inconceivable that some of these policies could be put into place. So that's generally the tack, I think, that they take lately is let's just make it much harder to access. And there's the legal framework of a lot of this is very patchwork around the country due to all of the sort of local laws that dictate closures and dictate what you as a manufacturer can do and you as a consumer can do as well. So it's like a huge endeavor to have that goal. And then you have to have a lot of like allies in certain areas too. Who are some of the allies of this movement and who are some of the people that you're seeing be involved in the neo temperance movement. Yeah. So there is perhaps the most prominent organized group in this sphere is um, the Marin Institute, formerly known as Alcohol Justice. They're a California-based organization. And they are pretty broadly anti-alcohol. I think that's fair to say. And they publish research and they hold symposiums and they you know, try to get their representatives in front of the media and in front of legislatures on this topic. They have been around for decades, um, since the 80s. They've changed their name, as I mentioned in the middle of that. But um, yeah, they're a pretty substantive force. Um, There are alcohol researchers at various universities who conduct public health research on alcohol and to varying degrees, take public stances based on that. So yeah, I think, you know, these are not people that 
are household names. These are not folks that if I said their name, you'd be like, oh yeah, I saw that guy in the news. But you sort of start to see the same names and groups pop up in in these conversations at different state levels, at federal levels. You, you know, if you pay attention, you kind of start to see the same players in these discussions. You're talking about academics and researchers and people that, you know, are pretty close to policy and into the political side of things too, which makes sense. I do want to talk about that link, and I know that's important in some of the work you've done. Are there other sorts of like social groups that you found in that, like maybe religious groups or other groups that have a similar agenda, but that may not be academic in terms of how they're going about perceiving this and sharing this message with people. Yes, there is crossover with religious groups. There's crossover with sort of just policy groups that aren't necessarily themselves like research oriented. I think about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which is still a huge lobbying force and very vocal and very compelling. I mean, it's hard to argue with families that have been so horribly affected by alcohol. And that's what makes them compelling um, and and such a mainstay force in this conversation. Um, so yeah, there are certainly groups like that that sort of interact with research and use certain researchers' claims to advance their cause and, and bolster what they think. And I think, I, I guess I want to say that I, I think when we're talking about something like alcohol, which has the potential to be harmful. It's it's worth having these. It's good to have these debates. I think society should talk about how we regulate things and how who has access to them and who are they harming. I just think everyone has to be, I guess, debating in good faith and trying to really capture reality and and talk about the reality of what alcohol does to society. Pulling at the heartstrings is definitely a very compelling thing for a lot of people that may not be as focused on the statistics or may not be as tuned into it. It looks like your research brought you to David Jernigan, who you mentioned was a part of the Marin and also now Alcohol Justice and is also at Boston University. And he's been broadly involved in this anti-alcohol research and he's headline provoking and has sort of an activist perspective. How did you kind of come across him? Because he gets a lot of play in your research and in how you sort of present this movement. Yeah, I ended up really, I ended up basically writing an entire multi-thousand word profile of David because he was so interesting. Um, so as you mentioned, yes, he is at Boston University. He was a very early member of Alcohol Justice, although he hasn't been a part of that group in some years now, but you know, it was very instrumental in its in its formation. Um, he runs the Center on Alcohol Marketing and Youth at Boston University, which, as the name suggests, tries to measure and quantify how much alcohol brands advertise to underage drinkers. So he's quite a force in this conversation. And I came to that profile honestly because his name just kept popping up in everything I was reading during the pandemic about about sort of these debates. I mean, his research was cited quite often. Um, he was a huge part of, of a regulatory, just real bluster um, in Maryland a few years ago, which my good beer hunting colleague, Brian Roth, reported about. Um, Jernigan was like on the ground testifying, you know, talking to policymakers, trying to change some laws around craft breweries in Maryland. So yeah, I just, he was on my radar and it, you know, for years. And I kind of just had this little Google doc of like Jernigan mentions um, and fi finally decided maybe this, maybe this person deserves uh, a full profile because he is, 
he's controversial. People in the public health sphere, you know, he has his supporters, uh, the alcohol industry and others really oppose much of his research um, and and have called into question some of his methodology. And yes, that activism that you mentioned is really fascinating because I'm not putting that activist label on David. He is the first to call himself an, an activist and, and to say, yes, my research is informed by my policy aims. And what kind of a leader would I be if I didn't do something about the harms that I'm seeing in my research. But that's also raised questions about how much his policy aims influence his research and what the feedback loop kind of is between those two. Uh, Just kind of an unusual position for an academic to really take. So that also made him extremely interesting to me. I think so. When you think about like academic research, it's often separate from activism. It's more like they are creating data or they're creating observations and then activists can do what they would like with them to find someone who's linked to both and who is very forward about that is pretty interesting. And then also the media, the mainstream media latching on to his work that is both of that and then perceiving it as fact is very sort of interesting. That was one of the focuses of your work that I thought interesting was, what does this say about academic research and the media? Yeah, that's an excellent question and and certainly a huge part of the story because, yes, David Jernigan is considered an expert in his field. He's quoted all the time in very mainstream publications, New York Times and CBS News and things like that. And I think what it and he also, I should mention, actively courts that media attention. Like this is part of his activism, right, is that he wants to be a voice in this discussion and and actively has talked about how to essentially get the media <laughs> to uh, speak to you and to advance your position. So he's he's quite savvy in that regard. Um, but I think what it says about the media is, you know, I, I firmly believe journalists, good journalists, really want to accurately represent scientific data. It takes a really long time. I mean, this story I worked on, I think, for more than a year. And, it, you know, I have a bachelor's degree in journalism. Like, I am not a public health researcher. So to weed through not just the conclusions of the studies, obviously, but the methodology, how are they conducted? Is this a good sample size? Who is excluded from the sample? I mean, that takes a really long time. And if you're a producer trying to put together a nightly news show, maybe that's just outside the scope of what you have time for. And this guy is the chair of a department at Boston University, like seems legit. Um, So I, yeah, I I just think it, it speaks to like time and resources and with newsrooms, shrinking, it's hard to justify maybe taking that time to like get into the nitty gritty and even to be able to then comprehend it. I mean, there were tons of times that I was asking my editor, you know, let's go over this together. Let's look at these data tables. Like, where is he drawing certain estimates from? I mean, you get in the weeds with this stuff and not everyone has the time to do that. The time that mainstream media has to actually and the content deadlines that they have and the impetus that they have to continue to put stuff out there is in conflict with some of the research that's involved. If you were to say something about sort of the ethics and the journalistic intent, how do you think people should sort of perceive stories when they read about, say, the neo-temperance movement and they see some data? How do you think people should sort of read through the lines there? Yeah, it's really hard because I I tend to push back 
when anyone suggests that like readers need to like dig deeper and need to like go find the study themselves like frankly who has the time in you know <laughs> looking through pivot tables in this economy i mean yeah like really who is going to read something in the new york times or a credible outlet you know you assume the journalist did that work for you and i think that is a fair assumption for readers i don't think it should be incumbent on readers to have to go to the journal of the medical american medical association like look this stuff up and i mean that just feels you know good on you if you do that but i i don't feel like it's fair to expect that i think it's it's a reporter's responsibility to ask you know if not to get into the super data weeds to at least ask what is motivating this person? What is their, you know, what are they trying to accomplish here? Who else can I talk to? I think that's only fair. And at the very least, you know, if you don't have the time as a reporter to dig into that data yourself, you should be speaking to people who hold opposing viewpoints and not just present them as there's a lot of talk in the journalism world these days about like both sides right. And like, if you're like this political party would like to overthrow our government, this one says, no. And just like putting those <laughs> side by side, like these are the same, you know, is, is, is kind of doing the reader a disservice. And I think, you know, it's on the reporter to, to try to get at the truth, right? Like only one of the, you know, if someone disputes data, only one of these things can be true. It's not an issue of he says X and she says Y. It's like, well, I mean, if this is a quantifiable question, then we should be able to find the truth. And I, that's, you know, that's on the reporter. That's what we do. We're supposed to do at least. <laughs> And that is interesting. You were talking about sort of the debates and how, in some respects, if I look up like a story online, it's really that the reporter or the writer is really just sort of aggregating stuff that is out there and then putting it up there in an unfiltered manner. And is that journalism? I mean, I this is a great you're really letting me nerd out on this <laughs> um but i mean this comes up in in my reporting um i'm thinking about also some reporting i you know i've been doing about mckeller and uh, you know allegations and issues there and i think there are people who expect that journalism just yeah it's like you interview the pro side you interview the con side you put them next to each other and who's to say it's like well I don't know, if you spend that much time reporting this, you should have some kind of conclusion. You should be able to say that one of these sides is more credible than the other. Um, and if you just kind of set it up as like, a, well, who could really know? Like, then what? what is your role? Like, then what is the point of you as the reporter? Like, you should have done some extra work to be able to say, you know, to, to weigh the merits of both of these arguments. You should include the dissenting view, but give me something, to, give me a conclusion, you know, let me know which of these you think is the truth. That's, I think, what a reporter does. And I wonder about the curiosity of the journalist, too, because if they're gaining all these perspectives, putting them together, and if the conclusion is sort of like, meh, here it is, I mean, it's a little disappointing on my part because I imagine, again, you mentioned like putting in the time into putting all this together. I mean, isn't the curiosity sort of beyond just the presentation of what this person said then and that person said at that point? And I wonder as well, like, because obviously the writers and the reporters 
put stuff together and then you have an editorial team. And so do you think there's friction between the demands of what an editor would want versus like what sort of a reporter is trying to put forth? And maybe something that we're talking about is lost because there's friction there in some way. That's a great question also. And I mean, I cannot give enough flowers and kudos and glitter and trophies and awards to all of my editors. Like, I do not understand reporters who don't like being edited. It is like my saving grace. Um, I have really wonderful editors at Craft Room Brewing and at Good Beer Hunting. And I mean, I think most often what my relationship is like with those editors is actually not them trying to tone down my conclusions. It's them pushing me to solidify those conclusions. That's what a good editor does. And um, particularly Brian Roth, my editor at Good Beer Hunting is, uh, yeah, I mean, the comment in my, in my Google doc of my stories is always like, and then what? Like, what does this mean? Like you've said one, two, and three, draw it together. What is the conclusion here? And I think that tends to be an edit that I get because I'm so close to the story. Like I've formed those conclusions in my head. I know what the takeaway is. He's like, write it down. You know this because you've been working on it for two weeks or a year or whatever it may be. Uh, He's like, but draw those lines for the reader. If A, then B. If B, then C. And then here's the conclusion. Like make it clear for people because I think, yeah, that's what people want. Like when I read, when I read long form journalism, I'm like, please. So what did you learn reporter? Like, so what's the point of all this? Right. Um, so I really appreciate editors that push me to, to get to that final point of clarity. And also if as a reporter, you can't define the conclusion, you need to do more reporting. (laughs) If you don't know what the point is, you better, you better get back and, uh, Keep digging. <laughs> Reeling back into, again, like the NA Bev space, this episode's coming out in January, and that's typically when we see more discussion about non-alcoholic beverages. And you've reported on this, you wrote a very interesting data-driven report on the actual sales of alcoholic beverages and the disparity between what's written about the growth in that industry versus what actually happens in scan or what is actually occurring on the ground. I've seen Athletic Brewing, for example, put a lot into aggressively pursuing all sales channel direct to consumer off premise. And they stated recently that they were going to put emphasis on draft next year, which is like interesting. And as a former publican myself, I find it a little hard to believe, but I'm here for the ride. So do you think that with breweries that are sort of like pivoting towards finding new opportunities and adding competencies to what they do. Do you think that someone like Athletic can just own that space because of the fact that there isn't alcohol in the product and it can be sold differently and directly to people? Do you think it's going to be harder for smaller producers that are making those shifts to gain presence if we're talking about like non-alcoholic beer? Yeah, this I, I love the way you set up this question, because I think what we're talking about are questions of scale whenever we're talking about NA beverages. So much has been made of the growth in NA beverages, uh, NA beer particularly, you see triple digit growth. It's from an exceptionally small base, which is not to diminish the growth, but it's like, let's put this in context. NA beer is about 0.5% of the overall beer market. So cool. It's going from nothing to something. That's a, that's a story, but I think it's important to like contextualize 
where that something is. So yeah, Athletic has has really been a rocket ship. I mean, it's such a smart company on in so many ways. And I agree that their ability to really hit so many types of sales channels um, is part of that strength. You can market it direct to consumer, they can ship it, you know, uh, there, there's a lot to be said for just routes to market. Um, I think for smaller producers, the question is, what are your ambitions for your NA product? If your ambition is to make a good NA beer and put it on draft at your tap room, like super cool. I would actually love to see more breweries do that. I think it's nice to have that for folks. I've noticed anecdotally more friends going out who do drink, but like might order an NA beer at the end of the night or something like that. So cool. If you have something that you made that you're proud of at your tap room, cool. That is a very different question than will my NA beer become like my third best selling SKU? <laughs> um, I, so I think it's important to have like a clarity of expectation. If you're a smaller brewery there, there's a lot of capital inputs to make NA beer well. Um, and with everyone so screwed on the supply chain right now, are you going to take cans away from an IPA to make an NA beer? Like, is that the smartest use of those resources? So yeah, I think it's about what are your ambitions for this product and what is a realistic expectation? And that might be different. You know, Athletic has a very different model than Taproom down the street that wants to have an NA beer on. So I think, yeah, managing expectations and being cautious is the name of the game. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Caper Not in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Scorched Tundra and Heavy Hops that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra Presents shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorched Tundra Festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode with the nerds in your life, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Kate Bernat. You do a lot of work in actually like looking at breweries and talking to a lot of producers of a variety of sizes. You mentioned that sort of like the capital inputs and the labor that goes into making this is the same as like a 7% IPA. So do you think that if you have that on one side in terms of like how it's made and what goes into it, and then companies that will ship you something and offer a discount on it. Do you think that that's another issue that comes into play when you're talking about like market strategy? That's a great point. And it's not even just, you know, the ingredient costs. It's like sometimes, I mean, there's specialized equipment to make this depending on how you want to actually produce these NA beers. So I've seen some breweries, smaller breweries, contract brew NA products at a larger brewery that's already doing NA stuff. And I feel like that's a viable, you know, kind of workaround here. Um, but yeah, I mean, Athletic is kind of setting up a an expectation for DTC. They're setting up an expectation for what the costs of those six packs look like. Uh, I recently ordered some for a family member and it was, you know, I forget what the exact cost on the six pack was, but it was comparable to like just a craft beer six pack and free shipping if you bought two six packs. I mean, who else can offer that, right? Like that's a that's a pretty compelling deal. So I think you know, yeah, consumers are are developing expectations around availability of NA and price point. And um, again, it might work to sell a seven dollar 
pint of NA beer in your tap room. Um, if you want to start doing that in distro and at scale, that's an extremely that's a different question. <laughs> and so if you were to sort of, I wouldn't say draw a line in the sand or say like, how much do you think that this can actually become a part of the beer market? You cited like a half a percent of the beer segment. How much do you think is actually in the segment going into next year? Love to make quantifiable predictions that I can be wrong about, uh, <laughs> but I, I will not weasel out of this one. Um, I'm going to uh, cite folks who have access to much more data than I do. Lester Jones at the National Beer Wholesalers Association has repeatedly said, like, I do not think we'll get to one one share for NA beer. I feel like we will get close potentially. Like if we see especially growth for brands like Athletic, I mean, if Athletic was in every on-premise account in cans and, you know, was doing their DTC and was doing their just regular distribution, you know, sort of IRI retail sales, then yeah, I we could get close. I, I also sort of sort of share that one percent as like kind of a hard ceiling. So I'm I'm thinking somewhere between the five, the point five and one percent feels like realistic given current conditions. You know, should there be some huge change in the market that I can't foresee, that could change. But I feel like right now that's where that's where I'd put my money if I were a betting woman, but I'm not. So <laughs> I think it's sort of tying this topic to what we talked about with the neo-temperance movement together. It's sort of an interesting thing because I wonder if the neo-temperance movement and people that want to see less alcohol consumed would actually favor a movement like this because there isn't alcohol actually in the item that people are purchasing, or if there's a habitual issue that they have in terms of beer, regardless of whether it has alcohol or not being a societal Ooh, that's interesting. I think potentially one area that they would have concern with here is about um, regular, quote unquote, alcohol companies that produce NA beer because a lot of the neo-temperance movement is opposed to alcohol companies themselves as entities and kind of treats them as like nefarious bad actors who are trying to lure children and and hook people on their highly addictive product and sell them too much and um padding the pockets of these you know evil um alcohol corporations so i feel like that could be potentially uh a a point of contention for them but hard to i've never actually put that to you know a researcher that's an interesting question when you first started getting into like reporting and talking about craft beer one of the things that was a value, and this could be just sort of like a supply situation, was that someone's sense of adventurism in craft beer was linked to tasting beers from all over the world and seeing different styles being interpreted in different places. And over the last sort of five or six years, in conjunction with the growth of the number of breweries that have come about large, large thousands and thousands to where we're at 9,000 now, there's been a shift away from imported beer outside of the Mexican lager category, which is maybe should be looked at a little bit differently from craft in some ways towards local beer, which makes sense because it's in conjunction with food culture and people thinking more about consuming within a certain radius of where they are. Do you think that this sort of shift has changed people's tastes or certainly like what people's expectations are when they're looking at a style or whether they're perceiving what's in their glass in some way? 
Yeah, super interesting question. I mean, yeah, imports were extremely important in my craft beer like knowledge acquisition. <laughs> uh, when you are studying for BJCP, you got to go find that Dunkel Whiteson somewhere, uh, whatever. <laughs> so, but yeah, I, I would agree that like they've maybe lost a little bit of the shine that they had a decade ago. Um, and I think that has a lot of factors. I think a lot of it obviously has to do with the rise of a domestic craft beer movement where there is so much stylistic diversity available to you in your own city that you don't need to look outside of those boundaries to find a lot of different flavors to explore. I think also a lot of the messaging around the craft beer movement about local, about freshness, um, about hops, <laughs> you know, was to the detriment of, of craft stuff or of imported stuff rather um, that isn't hoppy. And if it is, then it's like, well, how fresh is it? Um, so I think, you know, just stylistically, some of those, you know, imported Belgian and German British styles became less trendy. And also people were drinking what was close to them and local. And yeah, I mean, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to convince, I, I think, folks, general drinkers, not super geeks that like, you need to seek out this obscure British mild, like at some specialty store, um, when there's just a flood of really excellent beer in the grocery store. I think especially the very hard hit, if we're looking at people sending stuff to the U.S., the hard hit were really those third wave producers that built their identity around combining something of where they are, their sense of place. But within that is also the acquisition of ideas from abroad, sort of synthesizing them and then creating something that is contemporary and then selling that idea to somewhere else. And a lot of those companies actually built a lot of volume around being able to ship to the U.S. I wonder if you see those producers that may have relied on the U.S. market that have been, I wouldn't say shut out, but may have had limited access to market if they are adapting well to this long-term shift in some way. Yeah, I think that's the that's an interesting question for them. It's like, well, if you had if you had factored this in as such a volume market for you, um, how do you how do you maintain relevance and what's your value proposition to drinkers here? Um, and I mean, this is a question for U.S. craft breweries abroad as well. I mean, the import or exports rather are becoming a really big part of some breweries businesses of all different sizes. And the question is like, what does American craft beer mean abroad? And here it's like, well, what does Norwegian beer mean in the U.S.? What does Finnish beer mean? You know, what are these? What does that mean to drinkers? And how do you constantly remind them of that and, and remind them that they should pay a premium for it? It's a hard thing to do. Um, I don't blame, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised that it's a hard thing to accomplish. Um, Alexi, what did, did you see the shift at, as, you know, as a public in yourself? Did you see the shift happen at like a certain point? I'm curious when you would put this shift in time. I think that 2015, 2016 is probably a good, just something to throw out there. And it aligns with obviously like high numbers of openings of breweries in, and I'll frame my reference a little bit locally in Chicagoland 
and also with sort of the ins and outs and issues that importers had that were pretty much like tastemakers in this space that we're talking about having uh, different distribution woes and things like that. And so I think that the sort of lack or uncertainty that I as a publican had in getting things that were crucial to my assortment and then being able to fill them with something that was local, it wasn't the same product at all, but it was something that had a name that was familiar enough for people. And then that bridge never really came back for those producers as they came back. And on the other side that you think about as a publican is pricing of items too. And that was also around the time I think you had like all day IPA and you started really like the race to the bottom in terms of pricing of some styles. And so that really created some issues for breweries that were abroad and they obviously had like a premium attachment to it. And then the food movement was a part of it. So I would put it like around that time in a lot of ways. And it's hard because I think as someone who came about in a time of where you really formed your ideas of styles around examples from all over the world, I found it actually really hard to make a convincing argument that this local thing is even in the same ballpark as something from abroad. And that's, you know, linked to ABV, that's linked to profile and also sort of how that interpretation played out. At that time, these styles from abroad were interpreted here in a higher alcohol context, and it was a very different beer. So I would put it about that time. Do you think that's fair in terms of your observations? Yeah, that sounds right. And I also, this bolsters my um my hypothesis that 2015 to 2016 are like the most pivotal years in American craft beer in the last like decade. I just feel like things, there was a sea change in 2015, 2016 that I couldn't quite see at the time. But like now with a few years of hindsight, it feels like a lot shifted in those years very quickly. Like we're talking about this decreased perhaps prestige of imports, especially I think Belgian styles, safe to say, the rise of hazies around this time. Like there was just those two years, the explosion of breweries really like the double digit growth when the BA told us that we were going to get to 20% by 2020. I'll never, I'll never stop reminding people that that was a thing we thought would happen. (laughs) Um, That was all that that like one or two year time period. Um, And now it feels so radically different. I don't know. Someone should write that book. It is a book for sure. And I think also technology and the ways that people communicated about beverage is is a part of it. I can't put like a time frame exactly on Untapped, but that was when the way that you talked about beer changed quite a bit from being long form beer. You end up with the social media integration of how we're talking about beer. And so I think that all those things when you connect like mass media to it really sort of escalated a lot of that change too. Yeah. That's so interesting. What you just said really got me thinking about and how technology connects to the sort of imports question is like, where did you pre 2015, 16, where did you used to go to find out like what beers were super hot? You went to rate beer and that was such a global audience. It was like, Oh, apparently there's this like super hot brewery in Poland. I need to know about. And now you go to untapped and that's extremely US focused and you don't get that sort of more global perspective. I feel like it's it's even, you know, it's not even just US, it's like kind of niche even within your state and area. So I wonder if also, you know, yeah, all these factors kind of coming together to create this perfect storm that really changed the way we think about and drink beer. 
super interesting. I wonder if Untapped is going to be the biggest enduring sort of legacy of American craft beer globally is I'll use like recent anecdotal evidence from a trip when I was abroad. I saw very little American beer in Sweden and then earlier this year when I was in Denmark. And I understand those are special places within the constellation of European craft beer. But the supply chain issues also dictated that it was harder for them to get German and Belgian beers, which were you know, crucial and very easy to get and very cheap. And so there were no need for those examples. And so now you're seeing more embracing of the creation of these styles locally. And it's a little wave of that in terms of like, if we remember IPLs and stuff like that in the 2012, 2013, it's interesting. But I think that the way that people communicate could be the biggest sort of thing that could be remembered about American craft beer. Once things kind of normalize in the market to a certain extent, I mean, that's a massive legacy in some respects. Yeah, no, that's so true. And it's just, it is just wild to think about how quickly some of these changes have happened. Like I, in 2015, 16, I was working at Draft Magazine and it was like, again, the most fascinating time to be there really. And even though that was five years ago, some of that feels like just a beer lifetime ago. Like we are just not communicating about beer in the same way. We're not drinking the same things. We're not interested in the same things. The market doesn't behave the same way it did then. And that's like five years. It's kind of wild. And you think about also maybe what the role advertising can play in all of this, too, because the advertising that went into things like Rate Beer and Beer Advocate that were the drivers of our understanding of the beer world can shift if Next Class just says, hey, give me a lot of money and your shit will pop up high in the feeds or whatever. Like, it's a little scary to think about that, too, in some respects. Yeah. And I can't blame, you know, I can't blame a more mainstream audience for wanting to choose on a scale of one to five bottle caps and not have to write like a 300 word poetic <laughs> ode to whatever they're drinking that that ticks off all these specific you know characteristics and is it a is it a medium body is it a medium light body like i i don't blame <laughs> the average drinker for for seeking a um, an alternative to that but yeah it's had some really interesting ramifications you're BJCP certified and you've obviously spent a lot of time investigating styles. Do you think that there's been a shift in terms of the style expectations that people have, maybe how that's internalized by the people that make things, the feedback loop, and then can the BJCP even keep up at this point if they're making guidelines every so often? Yeah. I mean, I when people try to take a lot of issue with BJCP guidelines or whatever, you know, the Brewers Association guidelines for their competitions. Like I try to offer the counter that those are designed, like the BJCP guidelines are designed for homebrew competitions. Like this is their purpose. This is why they exist. Like they do not necessarily strive to reflect all commercial beer. Um, So I think that's like, I I try to defend the BJCP (laughs) in that sense. But um, I think what's happening now with styles is interesting because we're styles are only useful insofar as they set flavor expectations for drinkers. Like that's all people I think think people want to know what am I getting with this? And we've, you know, I see breweries do it super well where there are just like a few words on the can that are descriptive and they don't all have to be juicy. You can use other words. Um, <laughs> but like biscuity, crackery, dry. Like these are at least things that I can start to, to set expectations around. 
And, you know, styles are supposed to be shorthand for that, but average drinkers do not. What What is someone's conception of a Munich Dunkel? Like, why would we expect anyone to know what that is? <laughs> um, so, yes, by all means, please make me a technically perfect Munich Dunkel. I will love you forever. But, like, on the can, put words that I can understand. And, yeah, I mean, IPAs now just means, like, there are hops in it and people will buy those no matter what you do. So I don't know. IPAs are kind of their own thing, but like otherwise stylistically use words. Yeah. Is what I'm getting at. And I think that like adjective choice is really sort of interesting. And the example I use is this fictional product, the KFC crispy, crunchy, spicy. It doesn't really tell you what is in it. It gives you some very loose nomenclature that's highly subjective. And I think that IPA is similar in a lot of ways because it's now less of a style and more of like a marketing driver. And then the same goes for the substyles of it fall into that to a certain extent as well. It's pretty interesting. I think beer also needs to be honest with itself that like most people... And I feel like this is an especially American affliction that we're not great at actually describing things that we consume, like in terms of flavors and aromas. We're not taught to do that culturally. You know, you might sit down and be like, wow, this burger is great. You're not like, wow, I really enjoy the char on this burger. And also how there is a good mix of like fat and whatever, you know, you don't, we don't talk about our food that way. So I think there is a, a challenge in that beer needs to be honest with itself that like most people are not able to even articulate the flavors that they necessarily enjoy. That's why like fruity, like those are things people at least can latch on to. And I, I, I feel like beer could take inspiration from coffee, from other products that have really succeeded in defining clear flavor expectations. And even within coffee, like how many people drink straight coffee and how many people drink lattes with chocolate and vanilla and caramel and mocha chip and whatever (laughs) peppermint. We have a kind of a narrow range of flavors that we like and know and trying to force people to far outside that comfort zone for something they're supposed to just be enjoying and spending money on. And like, it's a big ask. And I think more beer could like meet people where they're at on some of those things. How much is beer in the traditional sense of like, it is these specific ingredients and they hit certain notes or is there a move towards basically like CPG emulation to a certain extent? And we see that in a lot of the contemporary styles and even like the language that's used around these beers to where the frame is about creating a bridge for what someone may be familiar with already. And if it's linked to nostalgia, then it's like bonus points. But it's less about introduction and more about playing on the familiar. I mean, beer used to be um, like cereal when cereal was like Wheaties and Cheerios. And now beer is still like cereal, except cereal is Lucky Charms and Fruity Pebbles. And I think, you know, I, I wonder if like this trend towards just clear and more direct and kind of like beat you over the head flavors across the spectrum, across CPG and beer is not a function of the fact that we're just like extremely distracted people without time and reflection. And like, we don't sit down with a bowl of cereal or a beer and think like, what am I tasting? It's like, oh, strawberries. Cool. I like those. Boom. We're done. We're moving on. Or we just like, have we as humans figured out how to flavor engineer things better and make 
cereal that tastes more like strawberries than strawberries do. I don't know. <laughs> these are, but I think about these questions as well. Like, what does it mean for the future? But I, I don't have an answer to that. The other side of this is that there are a lot of producers and arguably even more so than ever that are focusing on classic styles and that have staked themselves in whether it's like their interpretation of traditional styles or of doubling down on loggers or on specific things. It's interesting that these sorts of conventions are also marketing in their own way. Totally. And I I um I interviewed foam burrs in Vermont the other day and we were talking about um style selling through their tap room and they were like, you know what's finally happening? Craft loggers are finally happening in our tap room. And I was like, are they really? Because you know, folks been saying this for eight years. They were like, no. Now it is truly like almost you know, one-to-one sales with our IPs. And I was like, all right, we finally reached the future we dreamed about. But I think that that could be, there's an interesting future and I want to live in it where beer is the only thing that is beer flavored. Like if I want Pop-Tarts, those exist. Why do I need to buy a beer that tastes like Pop-Tarts or cereal or whatever? Like those objects are things I can go get. Beer is kind of the only thing that tastes like beer. And I, I want to live in a future where that is celebrated. I think you're not the only one. It is sort of interesting. And I wonder if those sorts of impulses towards like CPG emulation are really a temporary track in the longer run because people that are attracted to the beer because it's not beer, but because it's something else are really sort of living in the temporary phase of because they'll move on to something else, whether it's seltzer or whether it's something that can honestly like more effectively communicate what they're looking for. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think this is where RTD cocktails will be really interesting too, if those become more widely available, which it is certain they will. Um, You know, I think that's, there are things cocktails can do with flavor that beer can't do. And maybe if more of that fruit and flavor of that sort kind of gets shifted onto RTD cocktails, does that allow beer to kind of like recenter itself in terms of what it's more traditionally been. I mean, I'm not, I don't think these like food flavored beers are going anywhere anytime soon, but it it could be interesting as like a long-term question. I've gotten a lot of sort of feedback from listeners that wanted to know about how permanent some of the pandemic moves that producers have made. And I guess if you have some specific examples or things that you've sort of heard, good examples of how a pivot in the pandemic has actually been a long-term sort of, I don't even know what the next term for pivot is, but has opened up doors that those companies have decided to really like run through. Yeah. I mean, I, we named a great example with athletic earlier of like DTC. I think there are some breweries that started doing that and realized that it is a viable way forward. It's not for everyone, but for certain products and certain kind of like specialty beers that people across the country are interested in. I think that's for sure something that breweries can't lose sight of because why, I mean, wine's been eating everyone's lunch on this, but like spirits are going to do it too. So I think that's worth focusing on. Um, I also think skew rationalization, like I think the pandemic forced a lot of breweries to realize that they didn't need like 47 beers in their calendar every year. And And the supply chain is only continuing to make, this the case like if you can't get cans you have to only put your best stuff in cans and by best i mean the stuff that people buy so like yeah you might have a real special place in your heart for that like weird winter warmer spice thing but like if it wasn't selling the way another ipa could i think 
these are the years where it's going to be on the chopping block. Like maybe you just keep that as a draft product. I think things just like need to get more efficient for beer. And they did that during the pandemic. And I think it's just going to continue with supply chain, with increasing numbers of producers and competition. Like just make it easier, just make it easier. And like, that's not, you know, does that reduce consumer variety? Like, okay, we also have 8,500 breweries. Like I'm not worried about like us never being able to get interesting beer like that's um so i don't know i just think yeah like zero in on zeroing in on what they're good at and just kind of like play in the hits for a few years i think that's I think that's what we're going to see. I think that definitely playing to your strengths has been the thing that's worked for a lot of breweries. And I think that they've also had probably some really challenging internal conversations to get there. And I think that those have caused them to either sort of assess where their strengths are and double down on them or go in a completely different direction, depending on how they're interpreting those data. But I think that really the long term comes from that type of assessment and unreal understanding of what you do and what's important to you. I've been also like pretty surprised by the uh, wherewithal of these companies to continue to adapt. Like I'm just imagining someone pivoting in a circle over and over again around a basketball court because when the BA posted like survey data at the beginning of the pandemic of what was it like 50% would be out of business within six months. It was like some pretty pessimistic, it was pretty sad, but with a mix of some wherewithal and also support, companies have continued to thrive or at least like survive in ways that we didn't anticipate. Maybe the supply chain issues are really what is going to be the biggest dagger rather than just sort of the closures of the pandemic in early 2020. Yeah, I mean, I am glad you gave me a a door through which to walk and say that I am so impressed by what breweries did over the past two years. Like when this pandemic first hit and I was crazy reporting on all of this changing regulations and stuff like, yeah, I saw those BA numbers and I was like, am I going to have a job? (laughs) in a year like will there be a thriving beer industry to report on are are breweries going to continue to exist in any kind of a form that necessitates the kind of coverage that i do um i you know i really like feared for the industry legitimately and and to see that by and large they've yeah continued to survive is is an incredible testament to their ingenuity and stick-to-itiveness but yeah supply chain man i mean this feels like the biggest thing that everyone is talking about but like consumers aren't seeing yet man like breweries just straight up can't get stuff and are not packaging beer because of it and like that's only tenable for so long yeah i feel like the supply chain is actually the biggest story of the pandemic not necessarily i mean yes the on-premise closures were devastating but this is the second phase of like that devastation is just not being able to get stuff or tying up half your operating capital in cans in a warehouse. I think that a lot of operators have learned a lot more about their business and hopefully use of data can really be something that they use to their benefit as much, if not more than anecdotally, what they experience in the sort of echo chamber of their own facility because they probably haven't left in the last two years, right? Totally. I mean, and and that's something like, it, it's really hard to strike that balance as, as a as a brewing company like half of that is brewing and half of that is company like you you can't be so drawn to every whim and every consumer preference that you have nothing that you stand for and therefore you're just kind of like a husk of something but uh you can't have such a singularity of vision that it ignores like 
what people want <laughs> and reality. But that's hard. It's hard to strike that balance. Um, but there is there is data to show you how to perhaps do that. Looking into 2022, I can't believe I'm saying that right now. What are some of the lessons or takeaways that you as like an enthusiast in beer wanted them to learn that they have learned? Like, what are some of the things that you were stoked to see? I'm seeing in some places a return to really some of the like tenets of what to me craft beer was built on, like more local supply chains, um, you know, supporting a supporting like community fans and having them be your direct, like most direct source of revenue. Of course, this is for like smaller breweries, but even for some of the larger ones, like, yeah, just kind of refocusing on, on what craft was built on, which is hopefully like doing better for your partners, doing better for your employees, doing better for your fans, employees being a huge part of that. Like I'm, it's so overdue, but to see more chatter about and more consumer interest in like how are employees being treated? I think creating programs to support employees in this industry, that is an extremely welcome development. Like breweries, talk that up. I mean, I I think everyone thinks they're doing well by their employees, but like, what are you actually doing? How, you know, and then tell me about them, like brag about that stuff because it matters. So yeah, I think, you know, there were just some like nice positives that came over the last year and man i just hope everyone can get enough cans <laughs> get the malt and the hops they need um i feel like that's gonna be i feel like some people are really skating on thin ice with the supply chain stuff and it's gonna be really interesting it's gonna i feel like it's gonna get worse before it gets better so that's gonna be the big 2020 story for me I think. I think so as well. The supply chain will definitely be a big headline. And of course, continuing with sort of the human interest side of things, too, is that sexual harassment issues and things pertaining to like workplace. And I mean, these are human rights issues in a lot of ways. I think that those are going to continue to surface, unfortunately, for those that are involved in it. But also it's good that these things are coming up because it's forcing this community of craft to look at itself and also for consumers to see this stuff, too, because they may go into a brewery and see things only at the surface level. But it's important to know that these human things do occur in these places. And I'm hoping that owners and that employers kind of not just look at themselves in terms of like what they're making, but how they're going about doing it. Totally. I think, you know, maybe if nothing else, the last year and a half, two years during the pandemic has been craft beer really realizing it that it is a business and an industry and becoming a little bit more professional in its dealings. Like this year's craft brewers conference was one of the more like somber CBCs I've ever been to, but not like in a bad way, just in a really like everyone was there to work and like put their head down and learn and like solve business problems and professionalize. And, you know, yeah, it's not like let's shoot off rockets on top of a school bus anymore. <laughs> um, but maybe that's okay. That's maybe what this industry, you know, could benefit from. So, yes, I share your your hopefulness for the next year that like that increased 
professionalism can can benefit benefit the industry as a whole and the people that work in it. Absolutely. And I think it's just part of the maturation process of this segment of the alcohol business and of also like local retail too, is that there was a lot of fun at the beginning and uh, carefreeness, but now it's time to actually professionalize a lot of this and make your place a great place to work or attach some proper ethical concerns to what it is that you're doing and how you're doing it. Yeah, it's easy to play fast and loose when things are good and like you can't and it feels like you can't not make money or something like that and then you know when when things get a little harder like turns out you gotta focus on some of those fundamentals um and i think you know the more you take care of your business and your people like your beer will get better you will make good beer (laughs) and that will benefit drinkers like there's i think there is a tangible benefit to drinkers from good business practices like hopefully you're making the best possible beer because of that i think so the top headline of next year putting all the care into what you do totally totally yes 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 i'm just so glad that there is still a thriving wonderful beer industry for me to report on because there was a time when i thought that might not be the case like a year and a half ago um so thank goodness thank goodness we're all still here kate it's been a pleasure having you on heavy hops do you have any sort of uh parting thoughts for listeners no just thank you so much for this opportunity this is truly one of the more like wide ranging and thought-provoking podcasts i have ever been on so thank you so much for the invitation and if people want to read my work you can find it at goodbeerhunting.com in craft beer and brewing and you can follow me on twitter at k Excellent. Well, Kate, thank you so much. Thank you.